I already mentioned this afternoon, we've come to Lord's Day 27 in our Heidelberg Catechism, which I will read with you now. And here we confess the following. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. After the sermon, we'll respond together by singing from Psalm 22, Psalm 22, verses 4, 9, and 10, after the sermon. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you, boys and girls, who are members of God's covenant and congregation, as we just confess together in Lord's Day 27. This afternoon, we're going to continue to deal with what the church confesses concerning the sacrament of baptism. We're going to build on what we learned last week from Lord's Day 26. And there we learned that in baptism, we must focus our attention on the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that's because we know that we are sinners and we know that we do not deserve the mercy and grace of God obtained for us by Christ. But that's also why our baptism contains such a rich comfort for us. Every time we think about our baptism, we are reminded that God's grace has touched us. The water on our forehead may have dried up long ago, but the significance of that water touches us every day and every time we think about it. And that's a great encouragement to everyone who has received this sacrament. So this afternoon we're going to examine in more detail what the Bible teaches about the significance of baptism for all of God's people. It's, baptism is not some kind of ritual. It's not just a religious ritual that has some kind of secret or hidden power. Neither is it a declaration on behalf of believers. It's not a statement that we are making about ourselves or to God. Rather it is, as we learned from Lord's Day 26... It is God making promises to us. It is a sign and seal of his promises to believers and their children 
And that's the theme for the sermon. Baptism is a covenant sign and seal to believers and their children of the promises of the gospel. We'll consider, first of all, how baptism is a sign and seal, and secondly, why baptism is for all of God's people. So, Lord's Day 27 teaches us about the significance of baptism as a sign and seal, and it does that by warning us against two doctrinal errors. The first error is to regard baptism simply as an external sign. And question 72 um, indicates this. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? Now, if you look at the last line of Lord's Day 26, you'll see that Scripture does indeed call baptism the outward or the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. And the Bible uses this very strong language to indicate what baptism signifies. And so you could come to the conclusion then that it is the water of baptism itself that washes away sins. But this is what we call an external, the error of external religion. This is the way pagans, for example, view their religious ceremonies. And it's an error that easily creeps into the church. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, asserts that baptism has the power to pour sanctifying grace into a person that is baptized. And that's why they will insist that if a baby's life is in danger, and even if there is no ordained priest around, that anyone who is present, even a layperson, ought to baptize that baby. They insist that the ritual of baptism imparts grace. You can also see this kind of externalized religion amongst God's people in the Old Testament. Just to give one example, think of how the Israelites used the Ark of the Covenant in their battle against the Philistines during the judge, uh, the days of the judge Eli, the high priest. They were losing the war, so they got Eli's sons to fetch the Ark from the tabernacle. They took it into battle with them, thinking that that would give them the victory. But in the meantime, they forgot that they had to live by faith. They treated the ark as if the ark had some kind of special power. And they thought that if they could bring the ark into battle with them, they could manipulate God into giving them a win. And if you look at all the religious activity in the Old Testament during the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah or during the days of Jonah, you could see that then too people thought they could please God by being busy with religious rituals. And people aren't any different today. Today, many people are also busy with the outward trappings of religion. But the point that we confess in the Catechism is that all outward signs and religious activity are of no value if they are not accompanied by faith, if they're not done with a believing heart. We confess that only the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. And we've already confessed that in Lord's Day 23 and Lord's Day 25, that cleansing from sin comes through faith alone. And now we should honestly ask ourselves whether or not we are sometimes in danger of forgetting what we confess. Does externalized religion not creep into the church? Are we immune, immune from that? After all, if we put an equal sign between baptism and salvation, 
then we have externalized religion. And if we equate participation in the Lord's Supper with being alive in Christ, then we have externalized religion. And if we believe, for example, that church attendance makes us holy, then we have externalized religion. Then we run the danger, to use Paul's words to Timothy, of displaying a form of godliness, but lacking the power thereof. Baptism, church attendance, participation in the Lord's Supper mean nothing if it is not done by faith. And of course, baptism is no empty ritual, and we confess that there is a very close connection between baptism and the washing away of sins, but we need to be very clear, it is not the water of baptism that cleanses us. There is no power in the water. It's just ordinary tap water that the caretaker gets from the tap in the church and puts in a bowl. That water has no atoning value. Only the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. And every sinner must believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So that's the first error. The second error is implied in question 73. There our confession deals with this question. If it's really true that baptism itself doesn't save us, if the water of baptism does not have any hidden power, then why does the Holy Spirit in Scripture call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? So our confession doesn't deny that the Holy Spirit in Scripture speaks this way. But it does state that God speaks this way for a good reason. And that reason is twofold. The Holy Spirit wants to teach us and to assure us. Two reasons. The Holy Spirit wants to teach us and assure us. In the first place, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us something. In baptism, we have a a visible instruction. It's something that even little children can understand. Every child knows that when you play in the mud, you need to get washed. You need a bath. Well, in the same way, we need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from sin. But that, this does not exhaust the meaning of baptism. Baptism is not only a visible sign, it's also a seal. It's a, it's a guarantee. It not only presents us with a picture of God's grace, but it assures us of God's grace. And that's the fundamental meaning of the sacrament. God, our Heavenly Father, assures us by the sacrament that we are cleansed from our sins. And how, how is that brought, brought across? Well, let me put it this way. Do you see the water when a baby is baptized or when an adult is baptized? Do you see the water being sprinkled on the head of that baby? The little baby really gets wet. There's no doubt about it. And as surely as you see that sign being administered, That's how sure the promises of the gospel are. God ties the promises of the gospel to that visible sign. And it's a testimony of God's faithfulness. And that sacrament then is given for our assurance, and that's something we all need. The Holy Spirit knows that we are weak. That's why he uses such strong language in the Bible. Baptism is the washing of regeneration. You could also call that sacramental language. 
This language tells us that God really means what he says. When you trust in the God of your baptism, you don't trust in vain. When you believe what he promises, you will not be disappointed. And he gives us this sacrament to strengthen our faith because he knows that we are weak. Because the danger is great that we are often plagued by doubts. Isn't that that true? We sometimes doubt that God loves us, perhaps because of circumstances in our lives. Or because we look back at our own lives and, and what do we see? We see sin and brokenness and misery. But most often the reason that we doubt is that we tend to look in ourselves for assurance instead of in the promises of the gospel. And when we look to ourselves instead of to the promises, we not only begin to doubt, but sometimes we become confused. Perhaps we think that we cannot or should not make profession of faith, public profession of faith, because we don't have enough confidence in ourselves. Or we find that even though we have served the Lord for many, many years, we can still fall into the trap of of thinking that perhaps he doesn't love us. And the reason, again, for that is because we look too much, spend too much time looking inwardly. It's because we begin our reasoning with ourselves. And then we see weakness and brokenness. But if we begin with God and his promises... We see only faithfulness and love. You see, when you were baptized, God sealed to you the promise of his covenant. The promise that he would be your God and you are his child. And those promises are real, as real as that water that makes that little child wet. So how can we ever say, well, I'm not really sure? If you doubt God's promises, then you should also doubt that that little baby actually got wet with the sprinkling of water. We cannot doubt that God is sincere when he makes those promises. But the difficulty is that the problem so often is because of our old nature we, are, we constantly want to seek our purification and, and salvation inside of ourselves. That's where we look for assurance instead of outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. It's so easy to fall into that trap. That's our natural tendency to, to hope in who we are and who we are becoming instead of trusting in God and his word. We have to remember that baptism doesn't make a statement about how good and how obedient we are, but it declares how good and loving God is. And in baptism, we're not only assured of the washing away of our sins, but also assured of our adoption as children of God. And that means we're also called to walk as his children. We're called to take hold of the promises of God in faith. Just like Noah did, for example. When God commanded him to build the ark, Noah accepted God's promise. He trusted God that this was the way to be saved from the flood that was coming. And we know that that very same water that saved Noah and his family destroyed many, many people. 
But that's not because the ark wasn't good enough. That's not because God didn't, couldn't save them, but because they didn't want to accept God's provision of salvation. Well, in the same way, when members of the church do not believe, when baptized people do not believe, it's not because their baptism has failed them. It's because they don't accept the provision of God's salvation. Noah was spared from the flood, not because he built the ark, but because he also went in the ark and he stayed in the ark when the rain came down. And scripture speaks about the flood as a type of baptism. And the message for us then is, stay in the ark. Just as Noah and his family were saved because they stayed in the ark, so we are saved if we stay in our baptism. That is, if we accept and believe the promises that were made to us in our baptism. And again, as we heard last week, it's good to remind ourselves that this is the confession of a disciple of Christ, a believer. If you believe what we confess in Lord's Day 1, that you belong in life and death to your faithful Savior, then it follows that you can and must confess and believe what is written in Lord's Day 27. When you stay in your baptism, that is, you stay in the promises of your baptism, when you, or to use the words of Colossians chapter 1, when you are in Christ, then you will be safe. And one day, you will be presented without spot or wrinkle in life eternal. And when we come to realize that baptism does not seal and confirm something in us, but it seals and confirms something to us, then it also logically follows that baptism is for all of God's people. And question answer 74 addresses this point. Here we confess that infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. And this is evident from both the Old and the New Testament. In Romans 4, verse 7, Paul quotes from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is a rich promise concerning the forgiveness of sins. And Paul goes on to point out in verse 9 of that chapter that this promise is not only for Jews who are descendants of Abraham, but also for Gentiles. And this is an important truth because we all know that we are not descended, descended from Jews, but of, we are of Gentile descent. So what the Holy Spirit is telling us here in Romans 4 is that these rich promises belong to everyone who believes, everyone who has the same faith as Abraham. He is the father of all who believe, whether they are circumcised or not, whether they are Jew or Gentile. The Romans, to whom Paul wrote that letter, they were mostly of Gentile descent. And yet he says to them, Abraham is the father of us all. He is the father of Paul and the father of the Romans. He is the father of Jews and of Gentiles by faith. And if Abraham is our father, then the promises made to Abraham are ours as well. Then Genesis 17 is relevant for us too, where we read that, God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, walk before me and be blameless. But he also said, I will make a covenant between me 
and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. It's true, of course, God made a covenant with Abraham, who was an adult. But in the same breath, God included the children. And since we are by faith children of Abraham, our children are included in these covenant promises. And so Isaac and Jacob and the rest of Abraham's descendants, they were not excluded from the covenant. And so children of believers today may not be excluded from the covenant or from the sign of the covenant. And someone might argue, well, this is an Old Testament provision. Things have changed in the New Testament. But then we can point to what the Apostle Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Preaching to mature adults, he quotes from Genesis 17, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And this should not surprise us, brothers and sisters, because this is how the Lord works. He works through the generations. And God's word doesn't tell us that he has canceled this way of working with his people. Or that he no longer requires that all of his children receive the sign of his covenant. And we read from Colossians chapter 2, where we read about both circumcision and baptism. And the New Testament teaches us that, that any Old Testament symbols that include the flow of blood are no longer required. The blood of Christ is the last and the only blood that is needed for salvation. And so the ritual of circumcision is no longer valid. But in this letter, Paul insists that the Colossian Christians shouldn't fall back on those Old Testament rituals and signs. Some Jewish Christians were arguing that this is still the way that people had to become Believers, they had to become circumcised. The Gentiles had to become circumcised. But Paul says, you are already circumcised. Not with the blade of a knife, but with a circumcision done without hands. He calls it the circumcision of Christ. And then he adds in the same sentence, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised, also raised with him. In other words... It's not circumcision, but it's baptism that is the sign of faith in the New Testament. Baptism is the circumcision of Christ. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. The one now replaces the other. Our circumcision is without hands in the water of baptism. And so the Bible is clear. Those who receive the promise must also receive the sign. And that's why we can understand that Lydia, a convert from the city of Thyatira, when she became a believer, she and her entire household were baptized. And we understand that when Paul and Silas were in jail and they were talking to the Philippian jailer, they told him that he and his whole family must be baptized. And so when you take the Bible as a whole, there's a, there's a clear picture that children of believers belong to God's people. And that together with the adults, they are entitled to the promises, but also to the sign and seal of the promises. And scripture is clear that even though infants cannot believe, 
those promises are for them. That's evident from Acts or from Genesis 17 and Acts chapter 2. But there are other passages that also testify to this. Psalm 22, for example. Well, the psalmist says, Yet you are here, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Or think of Psalm 139, which, which the believer speaks of God's care over him even while he is still in his mother's womb. At the same time, we have to realize that receiving these promises is not the same as having these promises come to fruition in our lives. Children need to come to faith because we are all conceived and born in sin. We all need the blood of Christ and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. But these things are promised to the children no less than to the adults. And again, if it happens that someone born in the church and baptized in the church later rejects the promises of his or her baptism, that doesn't mean that God's promises are not reliable. In the end of Romans chapter 9, Paul explains why so many Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all people of God's covenant. But he writes that the reason they did not come to faith was not because God's word had failed, Not because God's promises are not reliable, but because they rejected God's provision of salvation, just like so many people in the days of Noah. So congregation, let's take careful note of of how we should approach the question of infant baptism. The Bible tells us to begin with God and his promises and not to focus on our own faith or the strength of our faith, or the lack thereof. God says that the children belong. And he gives them the same promises as the adults. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, he tells the people of Corinth that their children are holy. Even if only one parent is a believer, their children are sanctified, they are separated. And this is a great source of comfort. When we look at our children, we can be assured that God loves them too. They have a Father in heaven who cares for them as his own. And if God in his wisdom should take one of our children away through miscarriage or at a very young age, then believing parents have this assurance that that child was first of all a child of the Lord. And boys and girls, listen carefully. This is a great comfort for you too. You belong to God from the time that you were conceived already. Before you were born, you belong to the Lord and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have every right to call God your Father in heaven. That's not just something that your parents can do. You can do that too. And as I often say, when the minister says, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you. Boys and girls, remember how the Lord Jesus took the little ones in his arms and blessed them. He said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. How cruel it would then be if we kept our children from this sacrament. And how blessed we are when we know that our children belong to our Heavenly Father. 
and how blessed our children are when they know that they belong to God's covenant and congregation. Not based on what we see in ourselves, but based on God's promises and based on the one who gives the promise because he is faithful and true. Amen.